Romans chapter 7, reading verses 7 through 13. This is God's word. Listen reverently and carefully to it as I read it to you. What should we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. By effecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Amen. Be seated, please. Pray with me. Our glorious God, we praise you. We thank you for your precious word that we have before us, that we can read and that we can hear preached. We ask, Lord, that you would give us an appropriate sobriety uh, and humility and reverence as we consider um, this portion of your word that speaks of your holiness and also of the holiness that you require of all those who would be in heaven with you one day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll comment more about what I just said in that prayer toward the end of this message. Kids. Y'all like to drink a really cold glass of water, don't you, on a summer's day when you've been out running around outside and playing on the trampoline or whatever you've been doing. I know some of you have a trampoline. Cold water is delicious, isn't it? It feels so good going down your throat and those ice cubes rubbing against your lips when it's 98 degrees out. Isn't that wonderful, big tall glass of water? Water, children, is, is absolutely essential to living. We cannot live without water. 
uh, you go, I, I don't remember what it is now, if it's about three days, something like that, three or four days, you die if you don't have water uh, or something that has water in it uh, that's liquid. Water is essential to life. And God gave us water so that we might live and so that we might even enjoy life through those cold glasses on the warm days and the like. Uh, and so that we might have health. We need water, and it is a, it is a life-giving gift from God. I tell you all that because I heard some years ago a, um, uh, about something, a tragedy that happened. There was a radio station that, uh, I don't remember where it was, I want to say it was in Florida, but there was a radio station that uh, did a challenge. They challenged uh, a woman to drink huge amounts of water in a very short period of time. I can't remember if it was five minutes or ten minutes, but it was something like five or ten minutes, and she just had to drink huge amounts of water. I don't know whether it was three or four gallons or something like that. It was a lot of water. And this woman took the challenge. And she proceeded to drink huge amounts of water. And guess what happened? She died. She died from water. Now, she died from having so much water that her system couldn't take it all. But the point is, she died of water. Water which is given to give us life. That's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful blessing from God, and it's a good thing. And yet, it killed this woman. Now, I tell you that story not to discourage you from drinking water. You need to drink lots of water. It's good for you. So drink it all the time. But I tell you the story because I want you to see that something that is given for great good can also destroy in certain situations, can kill. God's law is this way. God's law, which is his will, expressed in words in the scriptures, God's law is given, was given originally by God to give life, to bring life, to sustain life, to ensure uh, eternal life. And yet because of man's abuse of God's law, our abuse in Adam, the law became to humankind a source, an instrument of death. And this passage speaks of that truth very eloquently. And so I want you to listen. Uh, because without, law, without being seen by God as a perfect law keeper, you and I won't get into heaven. Nobody will. We need to be seen by our holy God as law keepers. Or we will not get into heaven. So if you want to go to heaven, you need to pay attention. Okay. Enough of that melodrama. As one reads the writings of Paul, it quickly becomes apparent that one of Paul's favorite topics for a discussion is man's relationship to the law of God. God's law. As we learned last time we were in um, Romans, chapter 7, the, early, uh, the pre preceding section, 
we talked there last time we were here, that uh, when we come across the word law in Paul's letters in particular, we have to ask ourselves what the Apostle Paul means when he uses the term in whatever instance we're reading it, in whatever passage we're reading it. We have to use the context of where the word law, where we find it, where we're reading. We have to use the context to help us understand what Paul means there. And we also have to use our knowledge of what the Bible as a whole teaches. That is, we have to do theology to help inform us what law means on, uh, in Paul's writings in particular, and again in other places also, but particularly Paul. And Paul wrote Romans, of course. Now, sometimes when Paul uses the word law, uh, the Greek word namas, uh, he uses it to refer broadly to any standard uh, of conduct that commands and demands obedience to itself. So any standard of, uh, that says you need to obey this standard in order to, to get some, something. So that's a very vague kind of, uh, a general, I should say general, use of the term. And uh, occasionally, that is how law, the term law, is used by the apostle. Now, oftentimes, uh, Paul uses namas, law, to refer specifically to the Mosaic law in toto. So that is to say uh, the first five books of the uh, Old Testament including the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, including the uh, ceremonial laws that passed away when Jesus fulfilled them, when he came and fulfilled them, but that were in force during the Old Testament age. Uh, and he also, that would also include, the Mosaic law would include um, the ceremonial, uh, excuse me, the civil law, the laws that applied to Israel as a theocracy, as a nation, laws of uh, penal laws, that uh, told how you were to handle a criminal when he did certain things. And sometimes that's the way Mose, uh, Paul is referring to, to law, the Mosaic law in total. And then there's a third way that Paul uses this term. And that is, he will use it at times to simply mean God's revealed will at whatever point in redemptive history we're talking about. God's revealed will. Whether it includes, like it would during the Old Testament age uh, in Israel's time, whether or not it includes the civil and ceremonial applications of the moral law, as was the case then between Moses' day and, and Jesus' time, or whether uh, that revealed will of God is limited to just the moral law, of God, as is the case for those of us uh, who are living in the New Testament age. The civil law and the ceremonial law of, of the Old Testament no longer applies in this New Covenant, New Testament age. But the moral law still does, summarized by the Ten Commandments. Well, here in this passage that we're looking at, Romans chapter 7, Paul is using the term this third way, as the the revealed will of God for you in whatever age you are, and now we are in the New Testament age, so this refers to the moral law of God. But it also applied in the Old Testament age to the saints there um, as 
the, uh, the, uh, the law then was moral and the civil and the ceremonial. But now in our time, it is merely the moral. So, having said that about how Paul is using the term here, there are three things we're going to see in this passage. We do see in this passage. First is the original purpose of God's law as it was originally given. Secondly, this passage speaks of the actual effect of God's law. And then thirdly, this passage teaches the complete blamelessness of God's law. Those are the three points uh, we're going to cover in the next few minutes. First, the original purpose of God's law being God's revealed will for mankind in various ages throughout history. Um, God's law was given to mankind at the time of man's creation in the garden. Now you say, wait a minute, wait, he did? Yes, he did, through Adam's and Eve's conscience. They knew right from wrong just by the fact that they were created with a conscience that informed them of what right and wrong was. In addition to their conscience informing them of God's will for them, uh, his law, they also had spe special revelation. God spoke to them in the garden. Audibly spoke to them. And so both of these ways, law was given to Adam and Eve as our first parents. And the law was given by God originally to them and to all of mankind that we might obtain life through our keeping of it. That Adam would obtain life and that all of his posterity might obtain life. You say, where is that? Look at verse 10 of our text. Let me start in verse 9, but the point I'm trying to make is in verse 10. Paul says, And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, meaning came to me, when I became aware of it, sin became alive and I died. And then he says, And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Notice that, was to result in life. Life here, when he, Paul uses that term life, he's referring to everlasting communion with God. And he's making the point there in verse 10 that the law, the revealed will of God, was originally intended as a means to secure everlasting communion with God under the covenant of works, that covenant that God originally made with Adam in the garden before the fall. Had Adam obeyed God's will, specifically God's command that Adam refrain from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and all the obedience that would have to lead up to that, had Adam obeyed the Lord's will, he and all of mankind would have been confirmed in the blessed life that Adam and Eve were already enjoying as sinless um, creatures made in his image. In the garden. That truth, by the way, that they would have been eventually confirmed after a period, uh, indeterminate period of uh, testing, is implied by uh, the analogy between Adam and Christ. 
that is spoken of in uh, the New Testament by Paul in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. But that perfect obedience to the will of God as expressed in his law does in fact secure life for the one who perfectly obeys it. That principle is reiterated over and over again, actually. Not just in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, but also in the New. I'm going to read a few examples, not all of them, but one of them is Leviticus chapter 18. Uh, I'll read two from the Old Testament, one in the New. Leviticus chapter 18, we read there in verse 5. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Over in Ezekiel chapter 20, we read there similarly, starting in verse 10, reading to verse 11. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes, this is the Lord speaking, of course, and I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances by which if a man observes them, again, he will live. And then, more surprisingly perhaps to some of you, in the New Testament, look at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28, And there are similar passages in Matthew and Mark also. But I'll read from Luke, chapter 10. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's identical teaching to what we read in uh, Leviticus And in Ezekiel, and by the way, Nehemiah 9, 29 also states it. And I believe there are a few other places as well. This is a biblical principle. You obey, you live. The key there is you obey perfectly, and you will live. So, the law was originally given by God to provide a way for mankind to secure eternal fellowship with him by keeping his law, his will. But what has God's law actually done with respect to mankind in history? That leads us to the second point. That is the actual effect of God's law. Sadly, God's law has become an instrument of death. To us, sinners. It has become a means by which death comes to us rather than life. Why? Why has that which is so good and so righteous and so perfect, God's will, 
why has, as expressed in his law, why has that become an instrument of spiritual and physical death to us? Certainly not because it has somehow changed from what it was in earlier days. That is not the case at all. God's law, because God's will doesn't change, because God does not change, it cannot change. <clears throat> no, it has not changed. Um, but rather, it is because mankind has changed. We have changed as a race. Adam was created good and holy without sin. So it is not, humanity is not defined by sin. A person can be human and be perfect. Adam was, morally speaking, before the fall. But as we all know, Adam failed to keep God's will as it is set forth in the covenant of works. Read the law for his day uh, that was written on his conscience and that God had spoken to him in the garden prior to the fall. And Adam failed to keep God's will. He violated the command of God. He rebelled. And as a result of his act of disobedience, the entire human race, including you and me, we were all plunged into spiritual darkness and sin by our representation in Adam and his disobedience that plunged all of us into this wretched state that we are in as a race. And it is this sin nature that all of us share at conception uh, onward. It is this sin nature imputed to us uh, through the covenant of works uh, from Adam that has transformed God's beautiful law, his beautiful and holy and righteous will from an instrument of life into an instrument of death for humankind. That's the problem is man the law. Well, how is it that God's holy will, his law, has become an instrument of spiritual death for us and to us? Three ways. Three ways that I'm going to mention that are found in Scripture. First of all, God's law has become an instrument of death by shining the spotlight of God's holiness on our own moral and spiritual filth in our own hearts, conceived as children of Adam. Paul uses his own experience uh, with the law to make this point that God's law uh, spotlights our own sinfulness and, and accentuates God's holiness uh, and how different we are from God, morally speaking. He says in verse 7 there, What should we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, and here he refers to himself, but by implication he's, this applies to everybody uh, in Adam. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You see, God's law was a spiritual mirror <clears throat> that Paul was forced as an, as an unbeliever in his unbelieving days, it was a spiritual mirror, mirror that he was forced to look 
into and see the vileness of his own heart. A vileness that he hadn't really noticed, really, until the law forcibly brought his attention to it. Paul was rather fond of himself. All you have to do is read Philippians to find out. See how fond he was of himself, that he was quite the wonderful Pharisee in his own mind and in the mind of others. Quite the servant of Yahweh, so he thought. But when God shined the spotlight of his holy will on Paul and brought it to his attention, he was brought face to face with the spiritual blackness of his own soul. In God's sight, maybe not in his Pharisaical brothers, but in God's sight. And suddenly he understood his own guilt before God and worthiness of God's judgment and eternal damnation. Now some Christians say that it isn't necessary, it isn't necessary when you're sharing your faith with an unbeliever to set specifics, the specifics of God's law before uh, the unbeliever to whom we're witnessing. We don't, need to, we don't need to get into the details. We just need to tell them, you're a sinner and, and you need to be forgiven for that. And that's about all you need to say about the spiritual condition of the person uh, that you're talking to. We don't want to scare them off after all. After all. We want to make sure they um, ask Jesus into their heart. But the fact of the matter is, folks, that without the probing work of the Holy Spirit employing the demands of God's law, without that probing spiritual work that requires the law and an unpacking of the law to some degree before the uh, before the proud unbeliever's heart and mind. Without that, the unbeliever will never understand his own worthiness of God's judgment. And he won't understand his desperate need of the Savior, who alone can keep the law for him in, this, in, the, um, in the courtroom of heaven as his substitute. No, the specifics... And we don't have to read through all of um, the Old Testament or the New Testament for that matter, because that could be done too, in order for the unbeliever to be converted. They don't have to hear every commandment in the whole Bible. But they do, the, the uh, unbeliever, he does need to hear specifics that will help him to see his own horrible condition. So if you know uh, the person with your, you're talking to, you know that he is a thief, that he steals from the government, let's say. You need to talk about uh, the Eighth Commandment. You need, to you need to tell him, the Bible says you shall not steal. God hates stealing. So that in his head he goes, ooh, Ouch. Or if you know him to be um, a fornicator, you need to talk about the seventh commandment. God hates adultery. And by the way, all the other, all the other corollaries of adultery too, premarital sex, 
um, homosexual behavior, uh, and the list goes on, all of which are found under the seventh commandment. You need to, we need to bring those things to bear on their consciences, and we're the instruments that God uses to, uh, normally, to bring the truth to the unbeliever so that he can respond one way or the other to it. And we need to be, as, we need to be faithful to apply God's law uh, so that he sees his own failure to please God um, and his own culpability. So the first way that God's law <clears throat> is a spiritual, uh, is an instrument of spiritual death to sinners is it shines the spotlight of God's holiness on their own depravity. But secondly, God's law uh, becomes a source of spiritual death by providing an occasion for the sinful passions that lie within us to spring forth. Prior to being convicted of his sinfulness by God's law, Paul says that the principle of sin within him was dead. That's in verse 8. Um, but the sin, excuse me, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every, every, every kind for, apart from the law, in other words, apart from the law's application to my conscience, sin is dead. In other words, he's talking about his own experience. So sin was, in effect, dead in me. What does he mean by that? He's not saying that he had no sin nature. He's not saying that sin wasn't active in his life. But what he's saying is sin was, it was, in some sense, inactive, at least relative to the time following his being convicted by the law of God as to his own wretchedness. Sin was kind of quiet. It was quiescent. I learned that word recently. Didn't say much. Didn't rear its ugly head in such a way that Paul was aware of it. He was, after all, a righteous man. Sin was like a dormant volcano, docile before the law came, but explosive after the law was applied to his conscience. And once the commandment not to covet was pressed forcibly on Paul's conscience, the principle of sin within him was stirred up, which is what he says there in verse 9. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. This was the case with me. When I was a, a younger man, before I was converted, when my sins of rebellion and unbelief were first brought to bear on my conscience, shortly before I became a Christian, I did not realize that I was a sinful person. I was a good person. I told the person I was witnessing to that. I don't think he believed me. He didn't let on, but I'm sure he didn't. But I was like, I'm a nice guy. That was, those were my exact words. I am a nice guy. Why would God want to, why would God be angry at me? I was full of myself. And I didn't even realize it, you see. But then, not so much through the presentation of the gospel that I received, but rather through God uh, applying his law uh, to my conscience, I realized um, that I was full of self-righteousness and pride 
And I wasn't what I thought I was in the sight of God. I was a wretch. And it had the effect of increasing my guilt before God, the law and its application to my conscience. It made my guilt greater. And that's true of every unbeliever when the law is pressed on his conscience. The third way the law became an instrument of spiritual death to me and to all of mankind, uh, not only by spotlighting God's holiness, uh, not only by providing an occasion for the sinful passions uh, to lie, that lie within us to, to, uh, to become greater and more guilt to be incurred thereby, um, but uh, actually this is kind of a, uh, a third point is similar to that. It, it does increase the intensity of our sinfulness, of our desire to sin. And that's related to what I said a moment ago in the second point. But it increases the intensity of our sin. The sin principle within us doesn't just come alive when we are convicted by God's law, but it actually is stirred up to a new, more dangerous intensity. And again, Paul says that in verse 8. Sin became a... Um, sin taking opportunity, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment, in other words, through the application of the commandment to me, it produced in me coveting of every kind. It's like, it's like you've all, or many of you have heard this example, when you see the sign in the, in the park, on a park bench that says, wet paint, do not touch, what does everybody do? It told me not to touch it. That's why I do it. It's what we do. As sinners in Adam, it's what we do, apart from God's gracious intervention. And it's what the law prompts us to do by its, by its own holiness. It's perverse, but it's true. Paul was provoked by the commandment not to covet, to covet. That it might be brought to bear upon his conscience. And God's law essentially was fanning the flames of Paul's idolatrous lust that were already burning within his heart, albeit unnoticed un, uh, by him prior to that point in time. So then, a law that was good and holy and was originally given to promote and secure even spiritual life, everlasting life for mankind actually played and plays a part in our spiritual death when we are conceived and throughout our non-Christian life prior to our conversion if God is intent on converting us. So the question naturally arises then, well, is God's law actually the spiritual cause, actually the cause, rather, of spiritual death in man? Is God's law to blame for man's spiritual death and culpability? This is the question that Paul rhetorically asks himself in verse 13 and then he answers himself. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? 
And then he says immediately, may it never be. The law is blameless in this affair of human destruction. The law is blameless, it's, and that is evident from the fact that it was originally given by God. Again, in verse, back in verse 10, it was originally given by God as a way to secure life. This commandment which was to result in life. It was given for good, a glorious and noble objective, and that is to provide spiritual life to Adam and to all his posterity if he would have only obeyed. Now, God's law reflects God's moral character, and therefore it cannot be anything but holy and good a truth that Paul strongly affirms in verse 12 when he says, so then the law is, not it was, notice that by the way, he's not referring here to the Old Testament ages and somehow that the law that uh, applied then doesn't apply anymore. No, in the New Testament age, post-resurrection, Paul says the law is, it is now, good. Where am I? It's holy, rather. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. No, it is our perverse sin nature that was handed down to us by imputation from Adam under the first covenant. It is that sin nature that is to blame for our horrible predicament when we come into this world. It is our own sinful unbelieving heart that is responsible for deceiving us. Verse 11, Paul speaks of that. Sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me. Sin deceives, sin lies, and we love to believe sin's lies in our unconverted state. And even sometimes, sadly, as Christians, we are tempted to believe and do believe lies. But certainly as unconverted people, we do. It is our own sinful, unbelieving hearts, not only that deceives us, but that's responsible for killing us. Verse 13. Rather, it was sin. In other words, that is the cause of death. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, through the law, the will of God, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We are to blame for death in the world. We are to blame for all the things, my sickness right now. It's because of my sin. And everybody else's. But it's the curse of sin. We did this to ourselves. Gray hair, glasses. We did this to ourselves as a race. Well, God's law cannot in any way be blamed for our spiritual death. Neither can it in any way 
be looked to as a means of reversing the situation, of obtaining spiritual life for us. The law cannot help us to get right with God once we've, once we've um, offended him, which we all have. And the reason for that is because the law demands. Remember, it's God's will. The law is God's will for you and me. And God demands, through his law, perfection. Absolutely perfect obedience from conception to the end of our life. There can't be the slightest moral soil in us when God looks at us. If he sees anything that is contrary to his blinding holiness within us, the law says die. Calls, demands punishment for our lawlessness. And so it is utterly incapable of providing an avenue for us to be forgiven because it's the demander of death for the sinner. No, the law serves, we are told by Paul in Galatians 3.25, as a tutor to lead unbelievers to Christ. To lead unbelievers to the law keeper. That's what Jesus did, you know. He was 100% and is still 100% God, the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, and he is 100% man. United together in one person. And that divine mediator called the Christ, the Messiah. He was sent by God, the triune God, to be the substitute keeper of divine law so that sinners, lawbreakers like you and I, could be seen as righteous in the sight of God, in the courtroom of heaven. See, if he sees sin in us and looks at us and sees sin and says, uh, innocent or righteous, God isn't just. That's calling evil good. God never calls evil good. He can't, or he ceases to be just, which means he ceases to be God, and the whole universe implodes, as I like to say. No, God must be just. He must see perfection. And the only way he's going to see perfection looking at you or me is if he sees the righteousness of Christ who perfectly kept his own law from conception to ascension into heaven and did it for all those who will put their trust in him alone to save them. Are you doing that? Have you rested by faith alone and only in him alone in the mediator that God has provided under that second covenant, the covenant of grace, of divine grace, that has Jesus Christ as the covenant head? Are you trusting in that mediator, that substitute, who alone can keep the law, and by the way, not only keep the positive commands of the law, but endured the penal sanctions of the law for all those for whom he died, death, infinite wrath, which is what he endured on the cross. Are you resting in that mediator who alone can save you and me? He's your only hope. He's my only hope. 
Give thanks if you're already trusting in him. That's all you need to remember if you're a Christian. Well, no, not quite. Give thanks because he alone gave you that heart to understand what I'm, what I'm preaching. And live in a way that shows you're thankful. And if you're here today and you've been trusting in something other than just Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, I'm here to tell you you haven't been trusting in Jesus at all. You've been trusting in yourself. And I promise you the scriptures teach that you will not pass muster in the day of judgment. You will be cast into hell like we all deserve, but you will go there because all you offered up was your paltry efforts at uh, being a halfway decent American citizen or something like that. God will not be impressed because he demands absolute moral perfection from beginning to end from you. If he's going to say, innocent and indeed righteous in my sight, come on into heaven where I am. It's only if you have Christ. Resting in him alone by faith, trusting in him, not your baptism, not your good works, not your, not your good family, not your good looks, or whatever. You need to trust in Jesus. He's the beautiful Savior that God, the gracious God of heaven, offers to all who will come and, and experience his love and forgiveness, trusting in him, but only in him. Come to Christ if you've not done so. Let's pray. How we thank you, Lord, that you are a gracious as well as a holy and just God. That you revel in giving the opposite of what sinners deserve to them as they flee to your son in faith. Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus that way, resting, trusting, clinging solely to him, would you please give the grace that is needed for that person to flee to Christ. And for the rest of us, Lord, would you please Help us to live like this is true. To show you by our words, by our thoughts, by our deeds, that we love you for loving us first. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The uh, Lord's Supper is one of two holy ordinances instituted by our Savior prior to his ascension into heaven. The other, of course, was baptism. Record of the institution of the Lord's Supper is found in several places in the New Testament, one of which is Luke chapter 22, where we read of the institution by our Lord, starting in verse 19, and when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Lord's Supper, like baptism, is 
a sign of the covenant of grace that God, that I spoke of in the sermon that has Christ as the covenant head. It is a sign of that covenant uh, in that it pictures for us symbolically uh, what Jesus did to uh, bring about the, uh, that covenant's uh, ratification. That is, he gave his life. And by the way, he gave his life. It was not taken from him. Very important to understand. Uh, he gave his life on the cross, uh, divine life. So an infinitely valuable life was given uh, so that you and I might be forgiven and go to heaven. That's the redemption part. He purchased us. Uh, but it is more than merely symbolism. Uh, we differ with some of our Christian brethren on this point. We believe, uh, we don't believe uh, that uh, this is actually the body and blood of Christ, essentially here, as the Roman church does. But we uh, do believe that it is um, a means that the Holy Spirit uses to bring blessing to God's people. It is a, as I like to call it, it is a means of sanctifying grace, not saving grace, but sanctifying grace uh, when we uh, partake of it rightly. Um, and the right way to partake of it is by faith in Christ, actively resting in Jesus alone as we partake, seeking him, uh, looking to him for forgiveness, for strength, and the like. And because it is a sign and a seal of the covenant uh, of grace, it is also a means that the Holy Spirit uses. Um, it's not magical. It's not anybody who takes this gets blessed. But those who are believers who partake of it rightly, by faith, resting in Christ and looking to Christ, the Holy Spirit uses it as a means, as a means of strengthening you in your walk of faith and your, and your wrestling against uh, indwelling, or indwelling sin and the like. Um, and the scriptures teach that. Paul refers to this as a cup of blessing. A cup of blessing in 1 Corinthians. That means when properly used, blessing comes to the person who partakes of the cup. And that is by the Holy Spirit uh, uh, his blessing, not by the element itself. Uh, we are to partake of the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice of himself in our behalf, as Paul tells us. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death uh, to others until he comes again in glory. And again, it is of great value to the person who partakes rightly. This meal is not for everyone. It is only for those um, who, uh, uh, who, who are Christians, who know themselves to be Christians as the Bible defines it. Um, a lot of churches define Christianity uh, in wrong ways that are not biblical. Just because um, somebody has uh, uh, walked down an aisle doesn't make them a Christian. Just because they've joined a church, that doesn't necessarily make them a Christian. A Christian is resting in Jesus alone to save them uh, and is living a life that shows that Jesus' spirit is at work within them. They're growing in, uh, in desire to put off sin and put on righteousness. If you know yourself to be a Christian, you are welcome to this uh, table. Uh, uh, also, you need to be, by the way, if you're a professing Christian, you need to be a baptized member in good standing uh, of either this church or some other evangelical church. 
that believes that Jesus is the only way to God and that it's only through faith that you are united to him and forgiven of your sins. So if you are part of another communion, but, uh, uh, but it's an evangelical church, believes the gospel as, we, as I have articulated it this morning, um, and you are baptized, you are welcome to be, partake with us. You must not come. If you are not a Christian, or if you claim to be a Christian, but you are clinging to some sin, deliberately clinging to it in your heart, and you know you're clinging to it, and you know you're not giving it to the Lord uh, and, and striving, striving to put it off. If, you're, if that's the case for you, you must not come uh, because your soul will be uh, gravely in danger. Uh, Paul makes that abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that those who uh, approach him in the meal improperly uh, are eating, will eat and drink judgment unto themselves. But if you are struggling with sin, you have uh, certain sins that are particularly plaguing you, um, that all too often repeat themselves in your life, but you hate it. You're trying to fight against it. You're asking God for the grace to grow in obedience in that area. You're wrestling, fighting with sin. You are absolutely, you need to come because that's what this is all about. It's a means of sanctifying grace. Uh, and God, through this means, uh, can give you strength to better resist uh, temptation in the future. And so you need to come if that describes you. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing on our partaking here. Our Lord, we thank you for your wonderful condescension that's evident in this meal, that you use uh, edible, earthly, material elements as means uh, to encourage us, to strengthen us uh, as we partake of them, uh, that we can touch and taste, um, that reminds us of the humanity of our Savior as well as his divinity. And we pray, Lord, that as we partake now, uh, that you would indeed uh, bless our partaking, help us to cling to Christ as we feed uh, this morning. And we pray that uh, you would set aside these elements from their common everyday use under the holy purposes for which we are now about to use them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. As I am ministering in his name, give this bread to you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Please take the element and hold it until we've all been served, and then we'll eat together and likewise with the cup. The body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, he also took the cup, and having given thanks, as we have already done his name, he gave it to the disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray together.
Lord, we do praise you and thank you for the privilege of being at your table, Lord Jesus. You indeed are the host of this table, and you have lovingly and graciously invited us, called us even, uh, as your children uh, to be blessed by you in this way. We thank you. Um, We ask that you would indeed, uh, by your spirit, uh, strengthen us in our walk of obedience and faith, that you would uh, enable us more and more um, to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Please uh, help us, Lord, in our witness to a watching world that so desperately needs you. Give us opportunities to, to speak of you, to, um, to obey you in front of others, not in an ostentatious way, but uh, that they might see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. We pray, Lord, as we go from this place, that you would bless us in our uh, observation of your day. Help us to honor you in this day and to give you the entire day as you have commanded us to do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.